Hi there. Hey, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to another episode of the Room and Room Podcasts. Hey, so if you've not listened into one of our podcasts before, just to give you a bit of background, this is one of several episodes now that we've released so far during 2022. And the aim of this podcast is to cover off quite a wide range of topics to do with ruminant nutrition and a little bit of animal health. Just trying to offer a range of stuff that hopefully will appeal to to some of you in one way or the other. And where we differ from some of the more technical ruminant nutrition podcasts is that we try and keep these topics discussed at, I guess we'd call it a gumboot level. So that's not in a condescending way, but just to hopefully trying to keep these nutrition and animal health things relevant and um, basic so we don't get too bogged down in the academic side of things. So we have got some nutritionists that have been tuning in to those. Do forgive us if we sometimes simplify things, but we do enjoy just taking difficult topics and making them relevant to, to the rest of us. So first up, introducing myself. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a New Zealand-based veterinarian and nutritionist, and I simply love all the stuff to do with ruminants. I have a PhD in cattle nutrition and reproduction, but I really enjoy getting out on farm, chatting to the likes of yourselves and helping you feed your animals better. So look, these podcast episodes are actually an offshoot from the Facebook group, The Room and Room. Now this Room and Room Facebook group is all about a community where we try and get some discussion going around all things ruminant. And hey, look, if you're not already a member of that group, do head over, join into that group. Uh, if ruminant nutrition is your thing, uh, we'd love very much for you to join us. So let's get this particular Room and Room podcast underway. Like we've already done for a couple of our other podcasts, because this calf nutrition topic is quite a big meaty topic, if you pardon the pun, guess we thought to split this into two separate podcasts. So this first podcast, number one, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on how your calves digest the milk or colostrum or calf milk replacer or just whatever that you feed them. And once we've gone through those aspects around how your calves digest the liquid feeds, then the second half of this number one podcast is covering how your baby calves, your newborn baby calves, change their gut and uh, digestive physiology from uh, the gut that's only able to digest liquid feeds through, as your calves get older, to a calf with a pretty well growing up rumen that's able to digest pasture and baleage and hay and, and the likes of the other feeds that you feed your bigger calves. In the second podcast that relates to calf nutrition, we're going to kind of drill down a little bit more into the liquid feeds that we feed our calves. So we're thinking colostrum, transition milk, uh, your vat milk uh, with decisions on whether you're using vat milk, or the range of different calf milk replacers that are available. Um, we'll discuss it predominantly focusing on what's in the New Zealand market, but I know with our international audience, uh, you'll have your own available liquid feeds and your calf milk replacers. 
Let's kick off number one in this two-part series around calf nutrition. And as we say, we're going to start off with the basics of calf nutrition and how this calf very cleverly steps herself or himself across from what we call essentially a pre-ruminant. So that's a very young animal who isn't yet able to use her rumen to extract energy from her feed. And then that amazing journey as your calves step across to one that has a fully functioning rumen. And that's what our aim of calf rearing is about. We want to have a well-grown calf, but we also want a calf that's is pretty well self-sufficient, weaned off liquid feeds, and has a really good functioning rumen to take advantage of your lovely pastures that you're growing. And that may happen anywhere between 12 to 16 weeks of age, just depending on how you um, rear your calves. And we'll throw up another podcast that's going to really drill down into the different liquid feeds that we feed our calves and why some are better than others um, and some of those practical aspects around those liquid feeds. Right, let's get this calf nutrition topic kicked off. Hoping that you got your feet up at home or more likely with things getting busy that you're out and about, feeding calves, hosing down after milking, maybe you're driving around doing chores, picking up stuff from town, dropping kids off at sport or whatever. But just look, whatever, um, I'm sure you've got your multitasking brain well and truly engaged or worst case, if you've been like me over the last week or so, you may well be just taking it easy getting over COVID or the flu or whatever, um, given that most of us here in New Zealand seem to have had that in the recent months. If that's the case, we, we uh, here at the Ruben Room Podcast certainly hope that you're on the mend after that. Okay, so let's picture this. You have a brand new calf and you're going around checking the springers and there's a beautiful, maybe it's a stunning heifer calf out of your favourite or very best cow that's just popped out. She's steaming and fresh, a bit wobbly getting up on her feet. And we've got to say, because this is why we're in this industry, like, welcome to the world, this gorgeous heifer. So obviously this beautiful new calf, even if she's up wobbly on her legs, she won't be grazing anytime soon. And this is where we need to make a big investment, um, a lot of your time and energy and passion, as well as offering different feeds, both liquid and solid feeds, to help this gorgeous wee calf start to transition from being a baby through ultimately to being a grown-up cow, or perhaps in the case of uh, dairy beef, through to an animal that then can enter the, the food production chain. But anyway, at this early stage, just a few minutes old, this lovely heifer is, has... She's got nowhere near a functioning grown-up rumen or the other parts of the four stomachs yet. She's what we classify a pre-ruminant on day one of life. So while this calf has very much got all four stomachs present, so if you remember back to the basic first rumen anatomy and digestion series in this podcast, she's got four stomachs, right? Just remembering these, she's got the reticulum, stomach number one, she's got the rumen, stomach number two, the omasum, stomach number three, and the abomasum, that's stomach number four. This baby wee calf, really at this stage, whilst all those stomachs are present, only the number four stomach, the abomasum, is actually functional and ready to do anything useful at this neonatal stage of life. If we look at a newborn baby calf, 
and we kind of attribute the, the weights, the relative weights to one another of the stomachs. The abomasum, or stomach number four, gosh, in a newborn baby calf, that makes up about 50% of the weight of the four stomachs combined. As I say, the other three are there, but they're just not doing anything useful yet, and we'll come back to that point. Because this is where the journey begins, which is to not only grow a beautiful calf, but also to start to grow the reticulum, the rumen, and the omasum as this calf gets older. When you're calf rearing, you're doing two things. One is growing a beautiful frame and skeleton and lean tissue of this gorgeous calf, so she's got a big frame to hang the, the rumen on and eat a lot of feed later, but we've also got to grow this rumen, and we'll talk a bit more about it at the end of the podcast, about how sometimes there's a bit of tension between do we grow a beautiful big calf with a small rumen, or do we have a smaller calf with a big rumen, and we'll, we'll talk more about this. So back to this abomasum, by the time you've successfully weaned your calf and she's maybe four, six weeks off milk, by that stage she'll be a fully functioning ruminant. And at that stage, stomach number four makes up only around 15, that's one five percent of the total weights of those stomachs, and instead the rumen and reticulum particularly make up the highest proportion of those stomachs in that weaned calf. So our role, just to redefine that, is all about setting up these calves with the right nutrients to do those two things. One is to grow a beautiful calf with strong uh, muscles and a big frame, but also to support the growth and development of these four stomachs. How do we grow a calf and how do we grow a rumen? Let's first up discuss how your newborn baby calf is going to digest the colostrum initially, and then ultimately perhaps it's going to be transition milk, vat milk, or maybe your calf milk replacer. Now calf milk replacer, forgive me if I'm going to shorten that term calf milk replacer up to CMR, and what we're going to do is that second podcast to follow this one, we'll cover off a fair bit of like compare and contrast these different liquid feeds and the pros and cons of, of those for your calf rearing business. As I've mentioned in one of our earlier podcasts, we described the journey of a blade of ryegrass from the mouth through to out the back end of a dung pat for an adult cow. So that's a grown up cow with a full functioning reticulum and rumen. So what we're going to do is we're going to step back in time for that cow and we're going to describe the journey of, oh, I don't know, maybe three litres of milk and from the moment that that's suckled by your calf and through to um, when it's actually digested and the various nutrients in that milk end up being digested by the calf. So let's get this milk digestion journey underway. So again, picturing this, uh, let's say you've got a pen of two-day-old calves, got them trained onto teats already, and yeah, good work, by the way, for doing that. Maybe you've just pumped or poured some, let's say, transition milk uh, into the feeder hung on the front gate of your pen. Just to define transition milk, you've probably got your own term that you call transition milk, but the, the definition that in the industry we tend to call transition milk is that milk that's coming from your colostrum herd, but it, um, it doesn't contain the really good quality first milk um, colostrum or gold colostrum, but rather it's a mix of not quite vat milk, but it's higher milk solids and higher milk protein, particularly it's still got immunoglobulins or antibodies in it. So it's just that it's not right to go into the vat, but it's not the best quality um, colostrum. So 
more about transition milk in our next podcast about liquid feed for calves. So back to these two-day-old calves of yours. Look, they're very keen to see you, obviously. They learn so quickly, don't they? And uh, and hopefully they've trained well and latching on hungrily. As they're feeding, well, what are we going to see first? Well, as they do when, when they're attacking the backs of your leggings and fingers and everything else, there's lots of saliva, isn't there? Heaps of it. Slobber, saliva, whatever you want to call it. That saliva or slobber is, is very important to your baby calves because... It's Mother Nature's perfect way of starting or kicking off that digestive process. As we discussed in our previous digestion episodes, for a grown-up cow, yeah, like for calves, saliva is really important. And for grown-up cows, saliva contains uh, different enzymes, like enzymes that start to digest starch. So just remembering this is the adult cow. And as well, it's got buffers and nitrogen and a whole lot of other stuff. So when the calf is brand new... This isn't the case uh, in that the saliva of these very young calves is just simply there for a couple of reasons. One is to assist in the suckling process. And in the case of two-day-old calves, unlike containing all those other things that's contained in the saliva of adult cows, the saliva of these baby calves is really only going to contain one thing that contributes to the digestion process, and it's a single enzyme. Now, for those of you that like to collect useless facts, this enzyme, and it's a fat-digesting enzyme, is called pregastric lipase. Some of you might have, uh, the formal trained nutritionists might know it as pregastric esterase. As the name suggests, look, this pregastric or before-the-stomach lipase is an enzyme that gets dropped in before the milk of these calves arrives at the level of the abomasum or the um, fourth stomach. Once calves get older, the saliva starts to change in composition and the enzymes that it contains and starts to do more versatile things, more like the grown-up cow. But yeah, at this stage, baby calves, uh, there's an enzyme that starts to digest the milk fat. And we're going to talk more about that and the role of that enzyme once the milk fat arrives into the abomasum or stomach number four. So these gorgeous wee calves, what else is happening as they excitedly see you loading up the feeder with their breakfast? It's actually quite cool because what's happening, and it started just by the calves seeing you being being mum in the feeder, is that at the level of the stomachs, the abomasum is the only one that does all of the digestion of milk. And the rumen is just sitting there, it's a tiny part of the tract, the gastrointestinal tract, as we said before, and it's not doing anything yet like what a rumen, uh, a grown-up ruminant would do. The last thing that we want is the milk that's been slurped in at the front end of the calf. We don't want that milk to end up, by mistake, dropped into the rumen, because inside the rumen, if we get milk in there in these very baby calves, that milk will just fester and rot and we can get a condition called milk bloat, not to be confused with abomasal milk bloat, and we might cover a bit about that in the next podcast. Yeah, we definitely don't want that milk that's been drunk to um, to drop into the rumens. Thankfully, Mother Nature has this totally under control, and Mother Nature has designed what we call the esophageal groove, or again, some of you who have um, learned a lot about nutrition might know this groove as the reticular groove, depending on where you've been reading about this stuff. 
So this esophageal groove is so clever. It's like a muscular tube that's actually part of the rumen wall. What it does is that when it contracts, it forms a little muscular walled tube that makes sure that when one of your calves drinks milk or colostrum or whatever, that milk funnels right on through past the rumen and drops that milk directly into the abomasum. So it makes sure that we don't end up with milk in the rumen where it doesn't belong. It's pretty cool, Mother Nature. Pretty, pretty cool design. The closure, or I suppose contraction of that muscular groove, is stimulated by a whole range of things. And starting out with the comment before about when the calves are excited to see you and they've learnt that the sight of you coming along um, and rattling around with your gear and setting up to feed them, just that um, it's a neurological stimulus, just the sight and sound of you preparing the milk for them is enough to stimulate the contraction of that esophageal groove, getting ready to drink um, her or his milk. So that's pretty cool, eh? As well as that, the contraction of the groove um, is stimulated by other things um, and there's a lot of thoughts around it stimulated by the actual suckling process itself and whilst we don't often do bucket feeding here in New Zealand, I know still in Australia a few people will do bucket feeding, there is the thought that maybe the esophageal groove doesn't close as well with bucket feeding but then other people say it does so jury's out on that one. Typical, the more the more we learn about these things there's a lot of different opinions but anyway Whatever the mechanism, we do want to get a good groove closure to stop the milk spilling into that immature or very baby rumen. And we don't really want rotten milk in there quite yet, thanks. It's notable that there's always, like anything in life, it's never perfect. And you'll get a tiny spillage of milk into that rumen. But things going well, it's usually less than 2 to 3% of the milk consumed. There are always the risks of a a high volume of milk or perhaps you've got teats that are worn out and a a very high flow that when you get a very fast, rapid, rapid flow of milk in that you may get more spillage. So that esophageal groove isn't absolutely complete uh, but Mother Nature does its very best to keep the milk out of that baby rumen. Now here's the funny thing though when you think about calves drinking water. It's a given that our calves must have fresh, lovely, drinkable water to consume, even when they're fully milk or calf milk replacer fed. Now, the cool thing is, when they drink water, the water drinking doesn't actually stimulate the groove closure, so that water drops into the rumen. So it's kind of like that esophageal groove thing's like a drafting gate, eh? It gets stimulated to allow milk to bypass the rumen, but then is wide open and doesn't bypass the rumen and allows water to drop in to the reticulum and rumen and we'll come back to that because that's actually part of the beginning of growing uh, that baby inactive reticulum and rumen into a grown-up one but back to that point soon and while we're on useless facts about the esophageal groove even though it's obviously only important when your cows are babies when they're milk fed the bizarre thing is is that the functionality of that esophageal groove stays live it actually keeps that functionality when she's a grown-up cow and, in theory, can still work. Those of us that have been around the industry for quite some time, and you remember that back in the day in New Zealand, we used to do a lot of drenching, oral drenching of cows, whether that was for magnesium um, during the spring or sometimes zinc uh, during the facial eczema season. You'll probably remember back in those days, we'd always recommend against putting things like sodium bicarb um, into that drench or... Uh, higher rates of copper sulfate into that drench because we do know that things such as those 
minerals will stimulate esophageal uh, groove closure in adult cattle. So obviously when you're drenching magnesium, you want that magnesium to drop into the rumen because that's where most of your magnesium is absorbed. Uh, and similarly, if you are drenching with bloat oil, you don't want minerals in there closing that groove and, and your helpful bloat oil scoots straight past to the abomasum. So another useful bit of information or useless. You can probably forget that if that's of no interest to you. But look, back on track. What happens once that colostrum or milk or CMR bypasses the rumen and lands into the stomach number four, the abomasum? Look, in terms of what happens to this milk or CMR in that abomasum, it's going to depend very much on what type of liquid feed, whether that be colostrum or milk or CMR that you're feeding, and if it is a CMR, what type of CMR it is. We are going to discuss these feeds in more detail in the next podcast, but in the meantime, we'll just briefly glance over what happens in the abomasum to true milk, so not a maybe a whey-based um, CMR. We'll talk a bit more about this shortly. What's happening in the land of the abomasum? Let's say that your calf's just happily knocked back about three litres of transition milk. What's going to happen in the, in the abomasum? Well, first up, provided the calf is older than the first few days of age, and we'll come back to this important point, is that for a calf that's older than a few days of age, the cells that form the lining of the abomasum secrete a whole lot of hydrochloric acid. Now, the aim of this acid, it does a few things, but largely the acid drops the pH of the milk down from maybe 6.5 of, of the milk on the pH scale and drops it down a whole lot lower. Before um, a calf has a feed of milk, maybe you know, you're twice a day feeding and hasn't had a feed for the last few hours, the pH inside the abomasum can be as low as 1.5. That's really acidic, eh? And once the milk slops its way into the abomasum, uh, on average, the pH of the milk inside drops from that 6.5 down lower. Now, it won't hit 1.5, but it's certainly lower than 6.5. So, look, what's with this acid and, and what does it do? Why do we want acid in there? There's a range of different things. There's a couple of enzymes we're going to talk about shortly that the acids uh, stimulate the conversion of what we call a, a proenzyme into the active enzyme. But look, the, the first and most important thing that the acid does, aside from activating those enzymes, is that the acid acts directly on the casein milk proteins. And when we say casein milk proteins, we mean the casein uh, proteins that are present in whole milk, uh, in the whole milk and skim milk CMR, and also in colostrum, and not in whey-based CMRs, I might add. So, look, the acid acts on those casein milk proteins, and it, we call it denatures, which just bends those proteins out of shape, uh, to, to be basic, I guess. And what that does is this allows the initiation of the digestion of these casein proteins. That's the first point. Now, as I mentioned before, there's those couple of enzymes in the abomasum and that acid has activated those. So enzyme number one is renin. Sounds a bit like rennet, doesn't it? Hold that thought, come back to that. But this is renin. And the other one is pepsin. So we've got two enzymes that are kind of doing their thing in stomach number four to start your, your calf's ability to digest milk protein. So we'll kick off with renin. And just what does renin do? Well, 
hey, it's way important when you're feeding uh, whole milk or colostrum or skim milk or whole milk-based CMR because renin comes along and what renin does is it it acts on those casein proteins to make those proteins kind of clot or clump together. And you'd be going, ah, I've heard about this milk clot in the stomach. Hmm. Well, that's what's caused it. It's the action of the combination of the acid and renin to make it form a big clot, wobbly, jelly-like lump uh, inside the stomach number four. Inside that clot, you've got like a big kind of holding hands between casein proteins and milk fat inside uh, the abomasum. So it's kind of all joined together. That big clot or lump of, of wobbly milk jelly sets inside the abomasum usually about 10, 10 or 15 minutes after the calf's finished its milk feed. What that does is that even though we've got that big kind of wobbly jelly of casein proteins and milk fat that's trapped in that clot, there's other nutrients in the milk that don't join into that clot and are kind of left hanging around outside of that clot in a, in a totally liquid form. That stuff is actually whey. So we've got big wobbly jelly, and then outside of that, the whey contains things uh, like the lactose, um, which is what the, the milk sugar or energy component of milk, but also some of the soluble vitamins, not the fat-soluble ones, but the soluble ones, and minerals too. So what hasn't been grabbed as part of the milk clot is actually what we call the whey component. And we'll talk more about whey and uh, whey-based proteins and lactose and stuff in the next podcast when we talk about some of the calf milk replaces. But that clot kind of just stays there. So hold that thought. We'll come back to what that clot does. But the liquidy part that hasn't been grabbed you know, that whey stuff that hasn't been grabbed, that won't stay around in the abomasum for very long at all. And usually within a couple of hours, that whey, the whey proteins, the lactose, minerals, that's left the abomasum, stomach number four, and it's bounced on through downstream to the small intestine. And the small intestine is, is kind of what does all the heavy lifting of digestion, well, in us and adult cattle as well, but very much so in these smaller milk-fed calves. So... We've got a range of things in that way. We've got the whey proteins. Now, these get broken down very efficiently by what we call proteolytic or, or protein-busting enzymes in the small intestine and get converted into a heap of, like, peptides. And peptides are like the broken-down bits of proteins that contain a few amino acids and along with a few other individual free amino acids that are wandering around in the small intestine. They get grabbed by the small intestinal wall and end up uh, carried across into the bloodstream, which is super clever, eh? So that's where your calf gets all of her amino acids and peptides from. The milk sugar, lactose, that's again part of the way that's left the abomasum and, and also gets washed down into the small intestine. In the small intestine, that lactose gets busted up into smaller components, which um, every molecule of lactose is made up of glucose and galactose, and these are simple sugars that are very quickly and effectively transported across the intestinal wall, and it's like, see you later, sugars, they're into the blood, and they're off to the body tissues to be used as an energy source, which is super cool. So that's what's happened to the whey, it's kind of washed its way down, pardon the pun, (laughs) into the small intestines. Meanwhile, back in the abomasum, we've still got that wobbly clot um, of casein, proteins and milk fat, so what's going to happen to that? Over a period of time, maybe as long as seven to eight hours, 
that wobbly old clot gets broken down a little bit at a time under the influence of that second abomasal enzyme. That's It's not the renin, because that's the one that does the actual clotting, but it's another one called pepsin. That pepsin enzyme thing starts to break down those casein proteins in that big wobbly clot down to smaller what we call polypeptides. So they're um, longer chains of individual amino acids kind of all holding hands together, and it's these polypeptides that then leave the abomasum over those few hours and bit by bit by bit just slowly arrive into the intestine and there under those other um, protein-busting enzymes get taken up by the small intestinal wall just in that similar way that we said before about whey proteins getting absorbed, you know, those few hours earlier when the whey left the abomasum. So that's the casein proteins trapped in that wobbly milk jelly. What about the milk fat that's also trapped in there along with those casein proteins? Given the milk fat's kind of got a few hours to kill, but to hang around in that clot, remember back to the slobber calves, um, all that saliva production that contains, remember that enzyme of the fat-busting enzyme pre-gastric esterase or lipase, whatever you want to call it. Now with that enzyme, it's got a bit of spare time on its hands hanging around in the abomasum. That uh, esterase or lipase enzyme starts to break down uh, those fats into a mixture of what we call free fatty acids and also glycerol. So that's that's like your um, triglycerides being busted down to free fatty acids and glycerol. As that protein-busting enzyme, the, the pepsin stuff, busts down that clot, the milk fat is also um, well on its way to releasing those free fatty acids. And those free fatty acids, and the glycerol for that matter, head south downstream, down to the small intestine for digestion. Because most of the fatty acids in milk fat are what we call short-chain fatty acids, so the carbon chain's very short, these are really quickly and effectively absorbed by the small intestine and head off in the bloodstream straight to the liver, where the liver then... Uh, it's called oxidizes those fatty acids and, and releases a really good source of energy. So we don't end up with many of those short-chain fatty acids from that milk fat ending up in the blood going around to the peripheral tissues. It's just mainly that those get nuked or um, oxidized in the liver to provide energy. So long story short, in terms of its energy, the young calf gets almost all of its energy during those first few weeks of life from the combination of the milk sugar, which is lactose, and plus the milk fat from that oxidation or nuking of, of those fatty acids to generate energy. So it's all about lactose and it's all about milk fat to keep our calves bouncy and full of good energy. So finishing up on this topic of this milk clot in the abomasum, because it's really a cornerstone or central to the digestion of, of whole milk or skim milk-based products or your vat milk or colostrum. Now, this is obviously really important as a part of the process for the digestion of whole milk, skim milk, uh, colostrum and, uh, and the CMRs based on, on whole milk, skim milk. The whole aim of why Mother Nature makes this clot happen is that we don't want a heap of undigested casein protein arriving at the small intestine all in a hurry together. Instead, we really want that clot to form and gradually release those polypeptides um, from the casein breakdown, just bit by bit by bit. If we have, uh, we'll talk more about CMR quality and types in the next podcast, but there can be some issues if we if the clot doesn't form well in casein-based liquid feeds um, and can increase risk of nutritional scours, but hold that thought for the next podcast. On the other hand, and we'll talk more about whey-based CMRs, 
um, in the next podcast, but really briefly here is that whey-based CMRs don't contain any or very little casein proteins. And because of that, we don't get a clot forming in stomach number four, the abomasum, with whey-based CMRs. Many of you understand the clot thing and maybe you've done your own um, adding rennet to milk, uh, you know, and, and testing the quality of your CMRs and a bit more about that in the next podcast. But it's okay with uh, whey-based CMRs, provided they are truly whey-based CMRs and don't contain a whole heap of vegetable-based proteins, but sometimes they're okay. We'll talk more about that next podcast. But with a, with a high-quality whey-based CMR, it's okay for no clot to form because the whey types of proteins, there's a couple of key ones there, those are actually really digested, uh, sort of a la natural, if you'd like, in the intestines. So they're okay. You don't have to have a clot for whey-based CMRs to work very well. But again, we'll talk more about that in the next podcast. We did talk about the milk clot and some of you uh, may be routinely checking on your calf milk replacers and making sure that they're capable of forming a, a good milk clot or curd. You know, just to, you might do that routinely or maybe if you've got some concerns around nutritional scars happening on your CMRs. The reason that CMRs that do contain casein that we need to make sure that they're clotting is that sometimes, and it's a lot less frequently than many, many years ago, but sometimes during the manufacture of that calf milk replacer, sometimes if we have an overheating problem during the drying process, very occasionally that heating may end up damaging those casein proteins. And because of the damage, they don't clot properly or don't form a curd. Now, you can check this yourself by mixing up your whole or skim milk-based CMR and then adding rennet that you can get from your local supermarket and seeing if it forms a curd when you leave a container full, you know, maybe an ice cream container um, full of your CMR warming nicely in the kitchen sink, obviously not in the water, but sitting in the water, um, keeping that at around 40 degrees C. So again, we can discuss that more in the next podcast. But look, heat damaged whole or skim milk CMRs do increase the risk of nutritional scars. We're not entirely sure why this may occur. Like firstly, yeah, it may simply be that the milk clot or curd doesn't form properly. And then there's like the rapid transit of these casein proteins arriving in the small intestine that the pepsin hasn't had a good chance to start to digest properly. Or it may be, and this is probably more likely, that heat damaged proteins can't be digested properly and that's that poor digestion increases risk of pathogenic bacteria starting to overgrow those undigested proteins in the small intestine. So yeah, that could be it too. Well-made skim milk and whole milk-based CMRs really should be good quality and shouldn't have been exposed to overheating issues during the manufacture. But you can always check this with your vet or nutritionist around this point, do a curd test and, and investigate that further if you've got any concerns. So that's obviously the importance of the curd or milk clot in the abomasum when they're very young. Now there's one key thing to remember with this clot or curd process, and that's with your very, very baby calves during that first day or maybe day two of age, like, you know, when they're fresh out of the cow, when those baby calves suckle for the first time or are tubed by you to get that first milk colostrum in, when that colostrum arrives into the abomasum, after saying all the importance about forming a clot, it's very unlikely that that colostrum will form a complete clot in the abomasum. The reason for that is Mother Nature's doing a good thing once again, 
when we stop to think about it, because we've got in that first milk colostrum all of those incredibly valuable uh, what we call antibodies or immunoglobulins or IGs, whatever you want to call them, in that colostrum. And of course our immunoglobulins are proteins, the high molecular weight proteins. And what we want with those immunoglobulins, especially the important one, IgG, that you've probably heard about, is we want them to make it through the abomasum in one piece and to not get acted on by acid or renin or pepsin quite yet. So we'll talk more about colostrum in the next podcast, but long story short, those immunoglobulins, specifically IgG, they need to make it through the abomasum intact and we want them to quickly make it to the small intestine when they're very young, particularly in the first six hours of life, because during that time, you've probably all heard of this, is that this is when the small intestine very cleverly can effectively take up these very large protein molecules, these immunoglobulins, and transfer them straight into the blood. And this is a process you've probably heard several times before called passive transfer of immunoglobulins. As you know, this is super important because the calf is born with next to no ability to fight off disease because unlike us and a few other species like rabbits and guinea pigs and stuff, unlike other species, cows don't transfer any antibodies or those immunoglobulin things across the placenta while the calf's still inside mum. So poor old calf, when it's fresh out of mum, if it doesn't get enough good quality colostrum in those first critical hours, they'll end up very vulnerable to all sorts of infections and diseases just because the calf doesn't really start to get its own immune system kicked off and up and running until, I don't know, week four or five of age. And even then, that fledgling, that baby immune system takes weeks, if not months, to be able to properly cover off invasions by nasty bacteria and whatnot. So this is why all of us um, you know, it may be um, your manager, it may be a senior member of your team, your vets or whoever, everyone nag, nag, nags about the importance of getting that first milk colostrum, you know, sometimes we call that gold colostrum, into calves as soon as possible after birth, you know, heaps of rules of thumb, like 10% of live weight during the first 10 hours and all those other similar industry rules of thumb, and we'll talk more about that in the next podcast. So it's just coming back to that, that and so that's why when they're very young, like that first day or so of age, is that calves inside the abomasum there's very little acid because mother nature doesn't want any acid quite yet because it doesn't want that acid to nuke or to damage those immunoglobulins heading down to the small intestines. I guess there's one other risk during these first one to two days that this absence of acid in the abomasum is going to cause us problems. If you think about it, something else the acid does for calves is that it actually acts to destroy any of the unwanted, nasty, old, like bacteria that come into the abomasum along with the milk or colostrum. There's a real risk, if we're not very careful with hygiene of feeding equipment, of the baby calves that may be tubing them or whatever during that first day, particularly of life, that if we have bacterial contaminants, and we're thinking particularly one like um, E. coli, for example, if that ends up swilling around in that first milk colostrum, that bacteria will slop through the abomasum and come out the other side and go straight to the intestines because in older calves, that acid in the older calf in the abomasum will kill those bacteria. But remember, Mother Nature's not letting acid happen quite yet in those baby calves. And if we get bacteria 
that go into the abomasium, they're just going to smile and keep going and go down to the intestines. During that first 12 hours, particularly, though the gaps, the junctions that allow the passage of immunoglobulins to, from the inside the intestines and go into the blood, is that the bacteria go too. They actually hang on and go through um, into the blood. Or the other thing is the bacteria bind or hold hands with the IgG to make combination of bacteria and IgG. And because it's so big, that IgG um, goes straight through and out in the, in the calf dung and the IgG can't get across into the blood because it's holding on to bacteria. So whatever, you've got two things. One is IgG transfer is reduced if you've got bacteria swilling around in your colostrum. Second is that if bacteria aren't holding hands with IgG, those bacteria themselves, all by themselves, are going to go across into the bloodstream and we're going to get a condition called bacteremia, which is bacteria in the blood, and also endotoxemia, that the endotoxins released from the walls of those bacteria can actually make your calves extremely sick, especially in those first three to four days of age. Really important with hygiene around managing your colostrum. So look, that's enough about digestion of liquid feeds in the baby calf, but remember we'll, we'll rip into a little bit more about the different types of feeds and the array of different CMRs in the New Zealand market, so stay tuned for that one. So the second half and finishing up on this podcast relating to the nutrition of calves, we're going to now talk about how our baby calves need to start to grow a rumen in preparation for eating your grass and baleage and other feeds. So when we think about it, the whole cunning plan of, t of transitioning a newborn calf from birth through to a full-on functioning ruminant is really important as a part of our dairy or calf-rearing business. In theory, of course, calves, I suppose, could stay on milk forever, and, and in some parts of the world there's still a, a veal industry on milk-fed calves. But for almost all circumstances here in New Zealand, in reality, we need our baby calves to eventually grow a rumen uh, to get weaned off milk and onto the hard feeds, calf meals, hay, baleage, etc. And then ultimately for us in NZ, our pasture-based grazing systems. So like we said to kick this podcast off, we said that the calf has like four stomachs, but remembering that it's the abomasums, the, the busy one doing all that digestion stuff that we've covered so far. When we offer calves solid feeds, so ideally we're doing that from about uh, week one of age, or some of you will offer it right from day one, when we give them access to solid feeds, <laughs> the curiosity of our gorgeous little calves mean that they will start to get like interested in their environment, interested in things around play with the others and nibble away at anything in reach. We can take advantage of this natural curiosity and enthusiasm for calves to have a play and also to start to have a craving for them, uh, something for them to mouth with. With this nibbling and play and looking around their environment, so does this transition process start to begin from pre-ruminant to ruminant for our calves. Now, the academics classify this transition process into three parts or three broad phases as milk-fed calves step from milk through to a full-functioning ruminant. The number one phase is what we call the pre-ruminant phase, and this encompasses the milk-feeding part of it that we've already covered, but also, and up to the age of around three weeks of age, this pre-ruminant phase also acknowledges the fact that your calves will start to nibble away at some limited amounts of dry feed. So that might be your muesli or your, um, your meal or a bit of hay or whatever you've got. 
This nibbling behaviour is usually um, kicking off within days of birth and, and certainly by week one of age, and they'll have a go at whatever. Um, they can, can, can get their, their little mouths on. What is happening during this pre-ruminant phase is that these nibbled-at feeds, they start to drop into the un- underdeveloped uh, rumen and just kind of sit there. Like, the rumen at that stage is actually a sterile place, and there's not much happening in those initial few days. That feed's dropping in there, and as well as that, because we have to offer good quality fresh drinking water to calves, every time they drink, as we said before, that doesn't activate that esophageal groove, and that water will drop into that baby undeveloped rumen and mix around to make a bit of a dry feed and water soup in there that starts the digestion process or the development of the rumen. So that feed and water that's dropped into the rumen, well, it's not unsurprising in a calf shed environment that no matter how good we are with hygiene, there's going to be a range of microorganisms, so it might be bacteria, from the environment, despite what we do to try and keep things clean. We always talk about trying to keep things sterile, but we want some good types of bacteria and other microorganisms, ironically, to drop into that sterile rumen, because otherwise, how are we going to get a fermentation started? So, as I say, never fear, not all of the bacteria and microbes are necessarily bad guys, and it's the good guys that are carried into the sterile rumen when the calves nibble their feed, and that's what starts off the beginning of the fermentation process. These environmental microbes will arrive into that lovely warm, you know, 39 degrees Celsius sheltered environment inside that rumen, and they will start to grow and breed as bacteria and other microbes do using the eaten feeds that the calf, the baby calf's nibbled at. They'll use that as a substrate to grow on and feed off. And as I said, when they drink water, that water also um, supplies that lovely soup texture for those microbes and the feed to start to grow. So all the more reason that we need to offer newborn calves water to drink and start those dry feeds on offer earlier on. And we'll talk more about those dry feeds shortly. So as the fermentation proceeds, we shift from phase number one as a pre-ruminant into the second phase of growing a rumen called the transitional phase of stomach development. With the fermentation starting to get underway, the microbes produce volatile fatty acids or VFAs and those of you that have listened into the earlier podcasts about the basics of adult ruminant nutrition you'll know all about these volatile fatty acids but just to remind you if you haven't tuned into the earlier podcast about VFAs we have a large number of types of VFAs but there's three that we talk about uh, as being important for rumen function so if you remember this we've got acetate, which is the predominant one in a grown-up adult ruminant. We've got propionate and we've got butyrate. So acetate, propionate, butyrate. For this, during this transitioning phase for a calf moving from milk feeding to solid feed feeding, initially we want lots of two out of the three types of those volatile fatty acids present. We want one called butyrate and we want propionate. Now these two, particularly butyrate but propionate too, 
are very good stimulants of growing that tiny baby rumen and starting to grow into a grown-up type of rumen. And the reason these two types of VFAs are very good is that the rumen wall actually partly metabolises uh, for its own purposes at a local tissue level, butyrate and to a lesser extent propionate, which is why these two work so well compared to acetate that doesn't stimulate rumen wall growth or papillae, the lining of the rumen to grow quite as well. So yeah, we want solid feeds that are going to promote a lot of butyrate and propionate to grow the rumen wall and get it developing and increasing in weight and ability to absorb volatile fatty acids and do other things. Yeah, so these VFAs end up leaving the rumen, going across the rumen wall, metabolised in the case of um, butyrate and propionate, and the ones that don't get munched, if you'd like, by the rumen wall are transferred through the blood to reach the liver. So part of the process is not only growing a rumen, or reticulum and rumen and omasum, number three, but also the liver and other parts of the gastrointestinal tract or the gut are also growing and developing a whole heap during the second or transitional phase as your baby calves start to move from being totally milk-fed through to a weaned calf. Now, as well as the rumen wall itself and the papillae lining needing the stimulus from butyrate and, to a lesser extent, propionate, the developing rumen has a requirement for other things that we need to keep in mind when offering dry feeds to our young calves. Although those VFAs stimulate the rumen wall and the development of the papillae, which is a good thing, we also need some tasty, what we call effective fibre, to promote not only the uh, increase in the volume or the capacity of the rumen, but also to get the muscular contractions of the rumen happening. Again, there's lots of different opinions out there, but we think that we really shouldn't feed only muesli or start a meal alone. We personally think that your calves will also need some tasty hay, uh, for example, we'll talk more about hay shortly, to get a bit of bulk, a little bit of um, capacity into the rumen. It's important that we don't give them so much hay that they don't eat the starter meal because hay will promote lots of acetate and not so much propionate and butyrate. And remember, we need butyrate and propionate to grow the rumen. So we can't not feed starter meal. We need ideally both. The bulk of the hay, once it's dropped into the rumen, gives the rumen something to work against, to contract against. I guess it's a bit like if you went to the gym and you did weight training every day, but you got no weights in your hands, or you're doing squats with no weights on your back, you're not going to develop bulk muscles in the same way as if you do some resistance training, using weights to get your muscle fibres strengthened up and working well. So think of your hay as the weight training, I guess, of getting the, the rumen able to get to its nice one to two contractions a minute and start to mix those feeds around, and of course to stimulate a bit of cud chewing. The cut chewing is important in baby calves because so when that rumen is just at that baby stage, the pH of the rumen is actually pretty acidic. It's not a very nice place um, for bacteria to be. And because the pH can be low, even as low as under 5.5, it's therefore incapable of uh, the cellulolytic digestion of fibre in the feed. So the aim of setting up a good rumen is to grow a rumen, grow a rumen wall, grow the papillae, but we need to get the pH up to sort of over 6 when we'll start to get populations of fibre-digesting microbes starting to establish. So 
by the time we get to over six, that rumen is starting to look and function a bit more like a grown-up animal's rumen, which is super cool. Phase three of growing a rumen in a baby calf is what we call the true ruminant phase of this shift from a baby calf having no functional reticulum and rumen through to the point that that reticulum and rumen is actually starting to become quite a major contributor of energy and protein and other goodies to the well-being of your calf. And hopefully this is starting to happen around the time that you're weaning your calves and certainly within that four to six weeks after you've weaned your calves. Then from that point forward, this ruminant phase pretty well stays in play until the cow leaves your herd as a cull cow or your beef animal heads off to enter the, the food supply chains. This third or, or true ruminant phase is defined by the point at which your calf is totally independent of her or his need for milk or CMR or whatever. So he or she is now a totally independent animal. Uh, it's perfectly fine and capable to get uh, pretty well all of the energy and protein needs from the rumen as VFAs or microbial protein, which is pretty cool. That's essentially those three phases in terms of developing the rumen from a baby through to a functioning ruminant. And if you're interested then in the next phase of how growing up ruminants digest feed, just bounce back into those couple of earlier podcasts uh, that were posted during May 2022 and they cover off just how the the adult ruminant digests feeds found on our uh, New Zealand farms. We'll finish up now with wondering about these three phases of calf rearing and from a practical point of view, what solid feeds, types of solid feeds, do we ideally put in front of our calves to initially play play with a nibble at and then through to post-weaning? Well, look, at the end of the day, I've never seen one calf-rearing system that's identical to the next, and each and every one of you will have your own versions on what you feed to your calves, how you feed it, and I have no doubt that um, each and every one of you are really happy with your calf-rearing systems in place. And we, we don't think there's actually a, a right or wrong way to, to grow a rumen through those three phases that we've talked about. So the only thing we're going to add here is just some broad principles or ideas, I guess, to think about. And then maybe you can pick out anything that you might think is of value or to add for your own system. Totally up to you. So in terms of your, your data meals, your, your calf meals uh, to put in front of your baby calves, just when they're very, very young, well... Look, again, a lot of you uh, will have your own opinions and we're not trying to be prescriptive by any means. And because we're posting this in early August, it may be that a decision's already been made and you've you've got a couple of pallets of uh, starter meal product that's, that's in the shed already. So, you know, you may have what you have. Maybe for others of you or you're tuning in at other times of the year, you may well uh, be involved in the choice of what you're going to be using as a starter meal. But Whatever stage you're at, let's just check off some of the the basic principles of of what makes a good starter meal. Firstly, do calves need starter meals? Hopefully, if you've hung in there well enough with us to this point, uh, you're on board with this and and understanding, yes, of course, we do need a starter meal. Or otherwise, you're going to end up with a a beautiful, tall, magnificent, framey calf with not much of a a rumen on board, which isn't very ideal. And those types of calves will certainly uh, hit the wall pretty hard when we try and wean them if we start to ease them off milk and they don't yet have a, a strong functioning rumen in place. As well, even if you offer no dry feeds, calves will still have this built-in curiosity 
and be wanting to look for solid feeds to stimulate themselves so they'll be mouthing things, they'll probably get into all sorts of trouble and eat things they shouldn't, uh, you know, like your bedding, uh, whether you've got straw um, or post peelings or whatever, they, they will indeed eat feeds that they shouldn't eat to satisfy their desire to eat things and they're more likely to suck off each other and, and those sorts of things. So even if we don't provide a starter meal, those calves have been pre-programmed to kind of crave or or eat dry feeds because Mother Nature certainly knows what's best and that they would need to wean themselves at some stage. So hopefully you're all on board that we do need to offer dry starter feeds. Look, as anything in the market here in the New Zealand marketplace, there's, there's a heap of different types of dry starter feeds uh, as, as meals, as crumble, as muesli, as mashes, pellets, there's so many things to think about out there and, and each to their own, everyone will have their own opinions but in terms of types of products whatever works for you and, and or whatever your boss has pre-purchased or the owner of the calves or maybe your vet or nutritionist or whatever has advised you to feed so we're not going to get prescriptive about that either Personally, for very young calves, um, I guess it's a little bit like we like to think, what would we like if we were calves? And I do like those higher rates of molasses, kind of muesli-type products, you know, that contain that molasses. I, I think it's quite stimulating for the calves to, um, to want to mouth that. And sticky molasses helps the meal stick to their mouths and tongues and noses of your babies. And maybe that'll help them then lick it off and and, uh, and have a go at eating it. But yeah, that's a, that's a personal opinion. And while, look, while we're on the topic of molasses, it's really important that you'd never add liquid molasses, feed-grade molasses, to milk that you're feeding to calves. Simple fact is is that calves, these very young calves, younger than um, three to four weeks of age particularly, do not have the necessary enzyme to digest the predominant sugar type in molasses which is sucrose so they're lacking the sucrase enzyme they need to digest that so that's adding molasses to milk having molasses on your starter meal or in your starter meal is absolutely fine because remember the solid feed will drop into the rumen and that molasses will contribute to particularly to butyrate production which of course is what we want for stimulating the rumen development as we've talked about in terms of other aspects around meals or whatever, um, a lot of us will think meals are probably better than pellets at that very young age and then change to pellets, but again, each to their own. In terms of uh, specifications around your starter meals, obviously you tend to get what you pay for. The pricier meals aren't just pricey uh, as a way to rip you off um, or maximise margins on the sales of these products. They're better because they are better spec'd up. They'll contain the better balances of the different nutrients and in many cases extremely useful additives. So we won't go into that and we're not going to discuss any specific brands or anything. But essentially the rules of thumb that you'll very well know is that the majority of starter meals for young calves in the New Zealand market uh, formulated to provide 20% crude protein and then when calves um, are out on pasture and weaning off milk then you can switch to a 16%. If you Google overseas you'll see that the majority of people recommend 18% crude protein but like anything in life there's a bit of margin built in for protein levels being higher at 20% given particularly here in New Zealand where the the business of calf rearing I guess has been based on lower volumes of milk and a presumption that calves will be eating more feed earlier in life. Now that is possibly going to change in the future 
we'll talk a little bit about that, but don't want to go too far down that given the controversy around that point. So in terms of the things to look for, yes, we, we are looking for that 20% for the younger calves. If you have an 18% crude protein meal, that's probably okay if you're feeding higher rates of milk to your younger calves. And yeah, we'll, we'll just leave uh, the professional advice to a, um, a specific advice for you. But yeah, that 18 to 20% is where we need to be. The proteins contained within your calf starter will have been carefully selected by the fully qualified nutritionists at the various feed mills and typically those will contain at least two sources of protein meals you know for example maybe soybean meal uh, maybe canola meal sometimes it's least cost formulated to get the same type of amino acid profile but yeah we'll, we'll leave that to your professional feed mill nutritionists Sometimes you'll see some locally um, grown feeds such as peas from year to year. Sometimes the formulation will change from year to year based on availability of the ingredients. The carbohydrates in the meal almost exclusively will be coming from cereal grains uh, in the New Zealand market. And in the ideal world, and again, this is you get what you pay for when you have a professional nutritionist formulating this for you, but quite often we'll have an ability to combine different types of grains that break down in that baby rumen at different um, rates. So you might have the relatively slowly fermentable maize grains present and something that's a little bit quicker to ferment, such as barley. You might get a little bit of whole oats. It just depends. Every type of meal will be slightly different. What we, well, this is me personally, I tend to avoid um, wheat uh, as part of starter meals just because that can break down a little bit too quickly, particularly if it's been overprocessed, and that may damage the room and lining on your, your baby calves so that we get uh, essentially clumping of the new baby papillae. They clump together when they've been damaged by too much acid. We'll talk a, bit, a little bit more about this shortly. As well as that, we don't want particles to be finely ground because they can actually sink and settle amongst the rumen papillae and kind of ferment away there and again burn and damage um, the lining of the rumen around those papillae. We end up with stunted short papillae, not the nice long ones that have a big surface area over which the acids are absorbed. So again, you get what you pay for. Uh, different products, we have different additives containing a whole range of different things, vitamins, uh, minerals, uh, trace minerals and macro minerals. Sometimes um, it may be prebiotics and a range of other, there's a huge range of different additives that all claim to do different things with regard to helping grow the rumen and balance the nutrition of your calf. But what we need almost exclusively, and I'd be surprised if your products didn't contain them, is something called a coccidiostat. Now the coccidiostat aims to help the calf if the calf's exposed to coccidia in the environment during calf rearing. What the coccidiostat does is suppress the overgrowth of that those coccidia. We want the coccidia not to be totally killed like by a coccidiocide because Keeping the suppression of the coccidia allows the calf's growing immune system to recognise coccidia and start to be able to mount an immune response against it. Whereas if we had a coccidia side that killed all coccidia, at some stage your calf's going to have to meet those coccidia. So look, at the end of the day, we, we really recommend that you entrust your calves to the, to the care of essentially reputable feed companies who do employ these fully qualified nutritionists who do the right thing by your calves and if in doubt just seek some independent professional advice to work through what the best products are for you. 
we're heading into a season where the milk prices come back a bit. Costs have just spiralled through the roof. So there's probably going to be a few conversations this year about trying to save money on starter meals. And personally, we think that even in seasons like this one we're heading into, please don't scrimp on your starter meal. It's it's hard work with calves because obviously, say for replacement heifers, you've got two years ahead of you before your heifers start to, um, they, they calve down for the first time and come into milk and start to repay you. So they're just a bit of a money sink at the moment. They just you know keep taking more and more money from you. But look, at the end of the day, your dairy heifers are very much a capital stock class. And even if uh, you're doing dairy beef through to 100 kilos of live weight, we've still got to do the right thing by these calves. If you're doing dairy beef, we need them to have a good room and that's set up well. Hopefully you're selling direct to a finisher and you want to have that relationship of providing good 100 kilo wieners to them. So whatever. I think this is a year you're probably going to hear about round and about people choosing to not even use starter meals at all and maybe to replace them with something like, uh, let's say, palm kernel meal as a starter meal. Um, all we'd say is, for all of the reasons that we've stepped through in this podcast, to be honest, palm kernel PKE simply is not going to grow you a decent rumen for your future dairy heifers or for your 100 kilo beef wieners. Simple fact is that PKE, look, it contains very little starch or sugar. And instead, it's mainly a source of fermentable NDF and also oils or fat. And all we're going to get from that is an acetate-type fermentation in that new baby rumen. And remembering that acetate doesn't support development of the rumen wall. Instead, we need butyrate and propionate. Now, the other thing, too, is depending on your particular batch of PKE, it simply will contain too much fat for the baby calf uh, and her or his rumen because normally we need less than 5% and most New Zealand PKE batches contain 7 to 8%. Other issues with PKE is uh, very low levels of sodium and calcium. That's not particularly helpful for a young calf, particularly if you're trying to, to wean them off milk quite early. That's just going to be a disaster. The protein levels in PKE might be 15 to 17% crude protein, so already you can see it's too low compared to 18 to 20%. But most importantly is that the protein quality in PKE is utter rubbish. The amino acid profile is completely unsuitable for calves, so do not feed straight PKE to calves, please. And of course, the other thing with PKE is that there's no coccidia stat present, so as your pre-wean baby calves are exposed to coccidia, we're more likely to get coccidiosis. And if you, uh, as we need to do, feed a calf meal through and after weaning, without that coccidia stat uh, and the risk of coccidiosis associated with the stress of weaning, you are going to be a lot more likely to get coccidiosis or what we call blood scares in your weaned calves. So... Bluntly, please, even with costs being as high as they are, please invest in a good quality calf starter meal, you know, that 20 and then stepping down to 16%. It's just simply not worth uh, not having that for capital stock class or growing very good wieners. Similarly, the other inclination I know uh, for some of you will be to just pinch some rolled barley out of the milk silo at the shed and, again, this won't do your calves a lot of favours either compared to a well-designed, good quality starter meal. 
Look, although for sure barley, because it contains starch, will support a better type of fermentation in a growing rumen than PKE, aside from that, the rest of aspects around rolled or crushed barley just simply isn't suitable. You know, the protein content's way too low. Like PKE, you know, rolled barley contains low calcium, low sodium, low vitamins, um, and no coccidiostat. So that's really why we shouldn't be taking straight, you know, rolled barley out of the milkers feed for your calves. And another common question that comes up is, can we take another type of meal that perhaps has been prepared for your dairy cows? It may be a pellet or whatever. Uh, it's in a silo at the shed. And the simple answer is no, because those uh, loose meals or pellets that are formulated specifically for milking cows will quite often be completely unsuitable for your young calves. There'll be additives there to support lactation. There'll be a lot of magnesium in there and calcium and uh, not suitable for calves. So uh, it's easy, it's tempting, particularly if you've run out of meal, for example, just to fill the gap with the milking cow meal. But no, we'd not recommend that. I've got no vested interests in um, the sale of any of these data meal products, but just a genuine interest in helping you to grow the very best calves that you can, which means having a good quality 20 and then 16% calf meal or pellets. Finishing up now, it's been a long podcast, this one. You've done well to hang in there. Hopefully you're still multitasking furiously and getting the chores done. But look, the whole story about fibre sources for pre-weaned calves. Now, we've, we've already touched on this, but just coming back to this topic to finish up with is that we do think that calves should have a fibre source available to them from, you know, sort of that first or second week of age, particularly letting them nibble away at, swallowing some of that fibre into the brand new uh, rumen soup that's starting to uh, ferment and, and grow healthy bacteria to support the development of the rumen wall, the strength of the musculature of that rumen wall to develop that rumen well. If you Google the requirements for fibre for calves, you are going to get a complete spectrum of opinion, which is so true for all aspects of calf rearing anyway. But look, we think that there should be some fibre present for the reasons we've explained. But if you choose not to have any fibre at all, the key thing to look for is evidence of subclinical uh, rumen acidosis or clinical rumen acidosis and it's something that upsets me quite personally when I do see evidence of this specifically laminitis in all four feet of calves that may have had too much of high carbohydrate starter meals and or insufficient effective fibre to look after rumen function getting cutting happening. Again each to their own some of you won't offer fibre in a are absolutely happy with that and that's great glad that it works for you but from a conservative point of view where we're setting out to reduce risk of rumen dysfunction we think that fibre should be available to calves from quite early on in life in terms of types of fibre look entirely up to you it may be simply what you have on hand and certainly keeping costs down if you can grow your own homegrown fibre sources perhaps that's pasture hay or whatever that's great in terms of straw as a feed source look I know some people like it for their calves particularly barley straw that's quite nice and soft and if you're a fan of straw that's great but if you do use straw it's an absolute given do source a lovely soft um, clean and bright yellow type of barley straw that has got no dullness we don't want to see 
pink or white or grey speckling that suggests some mycotoxins might be present uh, and whatnot. Same for ryegrass straw. If you're near um, ryegrass seed-growing areas in New Zealand, you may have ryegrass straw available. By preference, seek some of the fine-stemmed and very leafy straw. So that might be perennial ryegrass straw rather than, say, an annual ryegrass straw. And preferably, we don't want ryegrass straw that's come from wild-type endophytes. So it might be from a nui-type ryegrass because there may be alkaloid toxins in there. Still staying with the straw, please don't use oat or wheat straw. It's just too sharp and nasty and pointy for for the very soft, gentle um, noses and mouths of baby calves. So look, by preference, I'm probably a hay fan for a fibre source for calf rearing. Depends on if you can get it and what price you pay. Like a a sweet-smelling pasture hay would be lovely if you can get it. We need it to be fresh and nice and sweet-smelling, not water-damaged. And we mentioned endophyte before as far as ryegrass ryegrass straw. We've got to be careful, too, that ryegrass-based hay doesn't come from paddocks that maybe it's an old paddock, again, with Nui or Yatsin or one of those high endophyte type ryegrasses from years gone by, still a fair bit of newy sold. So just we don't want high endophyte ryegrass seed heads in the hay for calves because they're less tasty and also we have got alkaloids in there that may negatively affect your well-being of your calves. So you're probably wondering why I've skirted around the topic of lucerne hay and let's be honest of all the hay types Lucerne hay is magnificent, just the best quality when it's well made. Look, the only comment we might make around lucerne hay is that calves, just like us, will love lucerne hay. And sometimes it's so tasty and so yummy that calves will eat that in preference to their lovely starter meal that you've put out for them. And the hay may therefore be eaten and instead start a meal that's left behind in your feed bins. So look, lucerne hay, as lovely as it is, um, won't grow the rumen as effectively as starter meal because lucerne hay will support more of an acetate-type fermentation in that baby rumen. As well, your very good quality leafy lucerne hay doesn't work as well to grow a muscular rumen due to its rather soft nature. And very leafy lucerne hay doesn't support a higher rumen pH as, as what a grass-based hay might. So each to their own. If you love your lucerne hay, carry on. But just if you are wondering about that, by preference, good quality grass hay. Sometimes you'll get some byproducts coming in. Uh, I'm Canterbury-based here, and sometimes we'll see things such as pea vinings and even um, pea straw as fibre sources. So each to their own. Pea straw, I think, is not so good, but pea vinings is, is a lovely byproduct as hay if you can get it. Right, so finishing up, we touched briefly on this earlier, but one really topical issue that you're going to hear a whole lot more about from now on is getting the balance right between feeding enough milk to grow a beautiful strong big calf so enough volumes of good quality milk or CMR and yet holding back on not feeding so much milk that calves have got no desire to seek and eat solid feeds to get that rumen development underway. So traditionally internationally and here in New Zealand as well we've tended to feed a little less milk than what the calf absolutely needs to be wholly solely fed on milk in terms of encouraging younger calves to eat 
more dry feeds earlier on in life to get the rumen uh, underway and the development happening earlier in life than if we just fully fed calves on milk for three to four months. The key driver for this is genuinely to get a good rumen growing well, but sometimes it means that the lower milk or CMR systems don't allow uh, your calves to express the, the skeletal development that they need to grow big and strong. The driver of feeding less milk and more solid feeds to be honest, is a lot of it's to do with the economics, just because of the price of milk or CMR compared to the relatively cheapest price of meal. So it's keeping costs down. As well, there's opportunities feeding less milk to um, reduce your labour costs, and then there's a the whole argument around or debate around twice a day versus once a day feeding. So we're not going to go into the politics around this, but just acknowledging that overseas, particularly in recent years, there's been a strong suggestion that we need to be feeding more milk for a longer period of time to calves, particularly heifer replacement calves. Now, there is some evidence, or some good evidence, that very well-grown calves from a skeletal development point of view, um, by the time that they're mated and come back into the herd as in-milk heifers or even three-year-olds, are producing more milk than calves fed on low-volume milk rearing systems and eating more feed earlier in life. So this is a, a, a difficult topic because it is very controversial, but we are likely to see more pressure on us as an industry in New Zealand to feed more milk and for longer to allow the skeletal and lean tissue development of calves to grow out better before they're weaned. And this uh, has been driven by not only the potential production benefits from doing this, but also from a animal well-being or welfare point of view that there are concerns that calves that are quite hungry may be not as happy as calves that are fully fed. So you're going to uh, see and hear more about this debate over the months or possibly years that's going to be an interesting topic for the industry, the calf rearing industry, to embrace given it's a fine balance between what's economically viable, particularly for dairy beef calf rearing, and, and what's good for the calf. Such a balancing act. So summing up, quite a magic process, isn't it, really, this newborn steaming brand new baby calf that's been born today and what its digestive system looks like by the time it's somewhere that, you know, that 12 to 16 weeks of age due to this magical transformation. And it is pretty cool from a baby wholly solely dependent on colostrum or milk through to still a baby, but a rapidly growing teenager uh, who's moved well and truly onto a solid feed and, and maybe pasture-based diet. It's, it's pretty cool when we stop and think about Mother Nature and how Mother Nature's provided this transformation transformational process for us. So look, if you've enjoyed this podcast, do join in with the next one. We'll just probably more on a compare and contrast type process, look at the nutritional differences and, and values between the different liquid feeds available for our New Zealand calves, whether that be colostrum to transition milk to vat milk, and then of course the various types of CMRs currently available in, in the New Zealand market. So Look, in the meantime, till you join us again, do keep well during this busy calving season. Eat well, uh, try and get lots of sleep and, and hopefully avoid all the COVID and flus that are doing the rounds at the moment that have <laughs> knocked quite a few of us around in, in recent weeks. So look, on behalf of myself, Charlotte Westwood, and of course our sponsors, PGG Rights and Seeds, 
Thanks so much again for listening into this podcast and hopefully that you've you've learned a few bits and pieces about just how your calves digest milk and build themselves into a growing up ruminant during these couple of three months of calf rearing. It's, it's pretty cool as a process. For look, any more information about all things to do with, with ruminant nutrition or to ask questions about what we cover in podcasts or to post your very own tips and tricks and experiences around calf rearing or feeding of adult ruminants, do head over to Facebook, search up the Rumin Room Facebook group and please do join in with our ruminant nutrition community. We'd, we'd love to have you join us. Thanks again for tuning in and hope you have an amazing day. Cheers. Cheers.